7, verses 6 through 9. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would enable us to put out of our minds the various cares and concerns of this world. We live in a world that is filled with trials and tribulations and things and decisions that demand our attention. But Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us that for this time, for this moment, we would focus upon you and upon your word. We pray that as we walk through this text this morning, Lord God, and uh, even as we continue to walk through all of chapter 7, Father, we do pray that that we would be transformed in our minds and our thinking regarding marriage, singleness, and human sexuality. So much of our ideas regarding these topics have been shaped by the world. And so, Father, we pray that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds and that you would enable us to think biblically, Lord God, about these things. And Father, we, uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So over the last several Sundays, uh, some of you may have gotten the impression that in order, in order to get the most out of this life, in order to fully experience the Christian life, in order to be as holy as you possibly can in your sanctification, in order to be closer to God, and in order to avoid sin and temptation, you need to be married. If you've gotten that impression, then you've made a mistake. Because the Bible never commands marriage. The Bible never commands marriage. The Bible never expects that all people should marry. In fact, the Bible never holds up marriage as being better than singleness. In fact, what we're going to see from Paul is Paul actually does the opposite. Paul will tell us in verse 7, for example, that I wish that all were as 
He'll tell us in verse 8 that it is good to remain single. It's good. It's a good thing to remain single. In verse 27, he'll tell us that if you are married, do not seek to be free from your wife, but if you are free from a wife, do not seek to get married. Do not seek to get married, is what Paul says. You see, because just as many Christians, just as many Christians do not have a biblical view of marriage and sex within marriage, so also many Christians do not have a biblical view of singleness. This is because most Christians, most Christian adults within the church, I think you'll agree, are married. Most Christian adults that I know are married, or at least they have been married. So the overwhelming majority of Christian adults are married, and they they view Christianity and they interpret the Bible through the lens of marriage. They interpret their experiences through the lens of marriage. The result is two things. Number one, the church tends to focus The church tends to focus on and highlight the blessings of marriage regularly, often, while at the same time ignoring the negative aspects of marriage. Because there are negative aspects of marriage, right? The second thing that tends to happen is that the church tends to focus on the negative aspects of singleness while ignoring the blessings of singleness. Because there are blessings, which Paul will talk about in very practical ways as we walk through chapter 7. And so the problem, really, within the church is that most Christians, the vast majority of the church, we tend to tout marriage as something that can teach you how to share, how to compromise, how to be considerate of others. That's what marriage does. Marriage is good because it teaches you how to compromise, how to share, how to be considerate of someone else. Because your life isn't your own, you got to think about another person. But we tend to conveniently forget that, you know, singles can learn how to do that as well. You don't have to be married to learn how to be considerate of other people, how to share, and how to be thoughtful. We tend to tout marriage as a means to having children. If you desire to have children, if you're a young lady who just envisions a day when you'll have children, forgetting that marriage is not a guarantee of children. And trust me, I I know after 16 years of marriage, we did not have children for 16 years. 16 years of marriage and visiting all kinds of infertility specialists, and the only thing we had left to show for it 
was an enormous amount of credit card debt. We tend to tout marriage as a way in which you will get to enjoy sex as though it were essential. Water, food, oxygen, and sex. Forgetting that two of the most significant people in the Bible were not concerned about it, Jesus and Paul. All of this touting of marriage that we hear in the church, that we hear in Bible studies, that we hear in Sunday school, that we hear in coffee shop conversations, all of this touting of marriage and our uninvited, our uninvited efforts to play matchmaker for our single adult friends has the unintended consequence of making single adults in our midst feel as though they are inferior, as though they are less spiritual than those who are married. It has the unintended consequence of making our single brothers and sisters in Christ feel as though they are broken, as though something is wrong with you if you're not married. It has the unintended consequence of making our single brothers and sisters in Christ feel as though somehow they are not a whole person. That there is something missing from their life because they are not married. And so to the singles, to the single adults in our church and to those who might be listening to this message online later on, There are seven things that I want to say directly to them that I hope they will listen to very carefully. Number one is this. Marriage will not fix your loneliness. Only Christ can do that. After 30 years of walking with the Lord and over 20 years of being in ministry, I have met with, I have had conversations with, and I have counseled with many married couples who were lonely in their marriage. Marriage will not fix your loneliness. Only Christ can fix your loneliness. Number two, sex is not the greatest experience that you can enjoy in this world and in this life as a human being. Christ is the greatest experience that you can enjoy and experience in this life and in this world. Number three, marriage will not make you more holy. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can make you more like Christ and make you more holy holy in your sanctification. Number four, marriage will not make you whole. Marriage will not make you whole. 
Because as a human being, you are completely, wonderfully made in the image of God all by yourself. You don't need another person to make you whole or to make you more into the image of God. You already are. Number five, marriage will not bring you greater spiritual blessings that are only afforded to the married. As a believer, all of the spiritual and heavenly blessings that can be found in Christ are yours by means of your union with Christ through faith. And if you're looking for a text, read Ephesians 1 very carefully. All believers receive all of the heavenly blessings in Christ because of our union with Christ by faith. Number six, marriage will not bring you children. Marriage is a sovereign act of God alone. Marriage is not a guarantee that you will have children. And number seven, marriage will not make your life complete. Only God can make your life complete. However, there are some sanctifying, God-honoring blessings to being single. There are. There are some sanctifying, God-honoring blessings to being single that married couples will never experience, especially if they got married at a very young age like my wife and I did. I was 19. She was 18. So we literally went from living at home to living with each other. We have no idea what it's like to be a single adult in this world. We cannot relate in any sense. There are some sanctifying, God-honoring blessings to be single. Let me give you at least six of them. Number one, singleness teaches you to find your complete joy and satisfaction in Christ alone. That's a blessing. You see, because married couples, we can talk about that, we can teach it, we can say that, but the reality is we don't actually have to find all of our joy in Christ alone because we have a spouse who brings us joy. Or at least they should. Singleness teaches you to find your complete joy and satisfaction in Christ alone. Number two, singleness teaches you to fully trust in God for your care and your protection. Something that married people really can't relate to. Because you see, we can say that, we can teach that, that you ought to find your complete your, your, your care and your protection in God and in God alone. But my wife has told me on several occasions that she doesn't sleep so well when I'm not home at night, when I'm away overnight at a conference or something. 
Because even though she is trusting in God for her care and her protection, she also knows that if there is a big bang in the living room in the middle of the night, there's a man laying next to her who will give his life to keep her safe and our children. She knows that. And even I know that as I'm going into the living room to figure out what this noise is all about, there is a good woman who's got my back who will dial 911 if need be, or maybe run into the living room with a frying pan. <laughs> Singleness teaches you to fully trust in God for your care and your protection in a way that married people really can't relate to. Singleness enables you to pour more into serving Christ and the body of Christ than married couples could ever do. Literally, when you are single, you can burn the candle at both ends for the glory of God. Married people just can't do that. We can talk about it, we can dream about it, but we can only burn one side of the candle for ministry and the other side has to be reserved for our spouse or for our children. It's one of the reasons, you know, some of our most well-known missionaries that we read about were single. Gladys Allred, Amy Carmichael, Lottie Moon. It's one of the reasons that very many missionary sending organizations will say that they prefer to work with single adults rather than married adults, especially if they have children, because single missionaries are so much easier to care for. They're much more flexible with where they can lay their head down at night or how they're going to get from point A to point B and what kind of safety precautions are needed rather than a married couple with children. There are more concerns there. And not just with missionary work, but one of the greatest theologians and pastors of our day who recently passed away is John Stott who never married by choice because he said that he, it allowed him the opportunity to pour all of himself into Christ's bride and minister to her. Single adults have the blessing of being able to be spontaneous. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a phone call or a text message from someone in the church who needed help with something in a moment's notice, but the wife is out and I'm at home with four kids. As much as I'd love to help, I can't be there. Singleness affords you the blessing and the privilege of being readily available at a moment's notice to minister to the body of Christ. Number four, Singleness affords you more time to spend in prayer, in God's word, and in reading books of theology. That is a tremendous blessing. You know, before we had kids, I plowed through theology books. I'd read ferociously, me and my wife. Once the kids come along, you can't sit in the living room for six, seven, eight hours and just read. It doesn't go well. 
I have four adorable critters I have to pay attention to. And that's not a complaint. I love them. But they are time-consuming. Singleness affords you the opportunity to pour yourself into prayer, into God's Word, and into reading good books on theology. Number five, singleness enables you to truly find your identity in Christ alone and not in your spouse. Because whether we like to admit it or not, once you're married, your identity is inextricably linked and tied to your spouse. What they do, you do. Guilt by association. In a lot of ways, legally, your identity is tied to your spouse. But when you are single, it enables you to find your identity fully, truly in Christ. And lastly, singleness enables you to lean on Christ for strength and support. To really experience that and to know what that means. You see, again, it's something that married couples can't really relate to or experience the full blessing of that. Because regardless of the very difficult situations that my wife and I have both been through at times in our life, at the end of the day, the other was there to comfort the other person. When she received a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning years ago telling her of the tragic and unexpected death of her brother. She didn't have to be alone in that moment. I was able to comfort her. Singleness enables a person to fully and truly depend on Christ for strength and support. Married people don't really know what that's like. The bottom line, what we get from Paul here and throughout chapter 7 is this. Marriage is not commanded. It's not commanded. Marriage is not better than singleness. It's not, according to Paul. And marriage is not the solution to your struggles. Whatever struggles you have in life as a single adult, understand that marriage is not the solution to your struggles. Because when you get married, all you do is you exchange one set of struggles for a whole new set of struggles. It doesn't solve your problems. It just changes them for something else. So with that as my intro, let's look at what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. We first have to ask, what is the concession that Paul is talking about? As a concession. Because remember, in the Greek, there are no paragraph indentions. Sentences just want, run one after the other. In fact, there isn't even any punctuation in Greek. There's no periods or commas or semicolons. The words just all run together. And so our editors have to try and determine how do we separate these paragraphs. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is what is the concession Paul is referring to? Because he's either referring to what he just said in verse 5 as a concession or he's referring to what he's going to say in verse 7 as a concession. 
In other words, Paul could be saying this, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. In other words, a concession is, look, this isn't something you have to do, right? But, it, but if you're going to deny each other, then, then make sure you're in agreement. You do it for a limited time. But I say this as a concession, that this is something that can be done. Or the concession is verse 7. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. That is to be single. Not commanding it, you can marry, but I make this as a concession. And there's arguments for both sides, and I I read them all, and and quite honestly, both sides have very good arguments. The truth of the matter is, we simply do not know. It is nearly impossible to tell from the text itself whether the concession is a reference to verse 5 or whether the concession is a reference to verse 7. With that in mind, I am simply going to follow the ESV, which is making the concession as a reference to verse 7. But it can go either way, and it doesn't really change the meaning of the text. Whether the concession is verse 5, whether the concession is verse 7, it does not change the meaning of the text. But for the sake of clarity, I'm going to say that I think that the concession is regarding verse 7. So I think the ESV has it right in the way that they've indented their paragraphs. But this point is interesting then, because Paul says, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, single. This is very interesting in light of what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, where he presents a very lofty view of marriage. Paul has a very lofty view of marriage, and yet he says, I wish that all Christians were just single and not married. Now, the Bible never states that Paul was never married. We know that he doesn't have a wife at this point. There's hints of that, such as in chapter 9, verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? But here, Paul gives the clear indication that he is single, at least at this moment. But does that mean that Paul has always been single? We're not sure. The text, the Bible never clearly makes that statement that Paul was never married. We don't have like a gospel of Paul that follows his life from childhood to death. So we don't really know a lot about what happened in the personal life of Paul, particularly before his conversion. Yet, the value that he sees in singleness is practical and not spiritual, and that that has to be emphasized. Paul does not say there is a spiritual value in being single. In other words, you're more holy 
You're closer to God if you don't get married, if you stay single your whole life. He doesn't say the opposite either. There's simply a practical value in being single, many of which I've already stated, but Paul himself will talk about those in additional passages in future verses. Verse 26, for example, I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In view of the present distress, my goodness, there's a verse that can apply to today. Look out at the world. Do you really want to bring children into this world? Paul goes on to say, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. That's fine. Stay married. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Don't don't color Paul's words. Paul says, if you're not married, do not seek to be married. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. That is true. And Paul will talk about that in great detail, particularly when we get to verse 32 and following. There are drawbacks to being married. Paul is going to address those. But what is clear, what is clear is that Paul is partial to singleness. In the mind of Paul, remaining single is preferable. Right? That's what he says. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In other words, Paul is saying, if you can remain single, then stay single. The trouble is, the trouble that Christians have both in this day, throughout church history, and even today, is that even among those single Christian adults, even among those who think they can remain single, who think they may want to remain single, they live under the constant pressure from friends, family members, and parents that you must marry or something is wrong with you or something is missing. They live under the constant pressure of selfish parents who want grandchildren. Don't be selfish and stay single. You need to get married and give us grandbabies. As though they are missing out on something if they don't get married or have children. Forgetting again that Paul and Jesus never felt as though they had missed out on anything. Paul and Jesus both felt very complete and very content in their relationship. Jesus with God the Father and Paul in his relationship with Christ. We do see, however, from the second half of verse 7 that Paul does see marriage as the norm He does see it as the norm because he understands that sexual desires are normal and a part of being human. He understands that most people are going to get married and probably should get married because they're human. 
And God created us with certain human desires that are normal. Which is why he says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is where we get the idea of the gift of celibacy from. Because the gift of celibacy, you've heard that phrase probably, is not actually found in the list talking about the spiritual gifts. And there are four of them. They're easy to remember. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. Those are the four places we go to read about the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. Celibacy is not one of them. But we also know that these lists are not exhaustive. Paul did not intend for these lists to be exhaustive. He makes that clear, I think, in the kind of language that he uses. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, for example, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then he'll say in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There are varieties of gifts. In chapter 12, Paul will list some of those. In Romans 12, he'll list other gifts that he doesn't list in 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, Paul will list other gifts that aren't listed in 1 Corinthians 12 or in Romans 12. All of that together tells us that these lists are not exhaustive. The question is, what is a gift then? How do we define what a spiritual gift is? And we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 12. You see, because some gifts of the Spirit seem quite ordinary, right? Like the Bible talks about the gift of helping or the gift of administrating. Well, what does that mean? Because all people help in some sense. We help each other. We help other people. We help at work. So what is the gift of helping? The secular world, there are unbelievers in their place of work who have to utilize skills of administration so that what is the gift of administration? Some of the gifts are quite miraculous, right? Like the gift of healing, where you just touch someone's eyes who's blind and then the person can see. But then other gifts that are listed are gifts which all Christians are commanded to do, such as the gift of evangelism, right? All Christians are commanded to evangelize. We are all commanded, per the Great Commission, to share the gospel with people. Well, then what is the gift of evangelism? The gift of teaching. All Christians are commanded to teach. And if you're scratching your head saying, what, where? The Great Commission itself. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Discipleship. Discipleship is teaching. And if you lead someone to the Lord by sharing the gospel with them, you have an obligation to disciple that newborn Christian and to at least teach them basic Christian doctrine. All Christians are commanded to teach. But yet there is the gift of teaching. So let's start with a definition. What is 
a spiritual gift. Here's my definition. A spiritual gift is an ability sovereignly given by God to a believer to do something that is paranormal, such as healing or the gift of tongues, the ability to speak in a foreign language that you've never heard or been trained in. We saw that at Pentecost. A spiritual gift is an ability sovereignly given by God to a believer to do something that is paranormal or to do something at a level beyond that which is common. To do something at a level beyond that which is common. So, for example, the gift of evangelism. You know, the difference between the ordinary Christian who's just trying to be faithful the person with the gift of evangelism is, I'll use myself as an example because I don't have the gift of evangelism. I try to be faithful and I share the gospel with a great many people over my 30 plus years of walking with the Lord. And a few of them listened. A few of them followed Christ. Someone with the gift of evangelism can stand up in a crowded room spontaneously and begin to share the gospel with that room and at the end of it, 75% of them will come forward and say, we want to follow Christ. Because the gift of evangelism is the uncanny ability to know exactly what to say and how to say it and the way to say it in just the right way that the Holy Spirit uses that individual as an instrument to make a radical impact on the unbelieving world. Billy Graham had the gift of evangelism. I could share the gospel with a crowded baseball stadium, and maybe two would come forward, and I'd be very excited. <laughs> the gift of teaching, we're all called to teach. Many of us teach in Sunday school class and feel like, I don't really have the gift of teaching. Homeschool moms teach the Bible to their children every day, and they should be doing that. Older women are told to teach the younger women certain truths. Older men are told to teach the younger men certain truths. Fathers are told to teach their children the word of God. So what is the gift of teaching them? The gift of teaching is the ability to take the deep theological truths of God and to explain them in a way that makes it understandable and accessible to even the youngest of minds among us the ability to rightly exegete the Word of God and teach it in a way that is faithful and understandable to most people. So Paul wishes that all believers could be like him, but he understands that it requires a gift. It requires a gift. Because... There are certain desires that are natural and normal to being human. Therefore, to do something beyond that is to do something out of the ordinary. And Paul understands that requires a gift to be able to do that. And so someone who has this gift, the gift of celibacy, is someone who can just go through life and it's really not that big of a deal to them. It may not mean they never think of it, but it doesn't overwhelm them. Whereas the average adult will find themselves desiring to marry. 
desiring to have a spouse, desiring to have children. They will long for it. So Paul says this isn't for everyone. It requires a gift. But again, in verse 8, he reiterates his recommendation. He says in verse 8, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. It is good. Paul said it's a good thing to stay single. What is interesting, I think, and many scholars think, is that Paul mentions the unmarried, which we would assume refers to men and women, the unmarried and the widows. But what about the widowers? Why doesn't Paul mention widowers? Why just the unmarried men and women who are single, probably younger in age, and the widows? What, what about widowers? There's two possibilities to answering this question, two theories, I should say, theological solutions that have been promoted. Number one is this. Maybe this is what Paul has in mind, and maybe this is why he doesn't mention widowers, is that in this day and age, if a man loses his wife, likely there are children involved, because that was always the goal of marriage back then, and they, they desired it. Children were viewed as a blessing. They would have as many as they could. If a man loses his wife, likely there are children involved, and they would need a mother. Because in this day and age, likely a man would have to go out and work the land. Most people made their living off of their own land. And the whole idea of daycare was non-existent. So a man who suddenly loses his wife and he has all these children... He's got to go out. He's got to plow. He's got to work the land. It may mean that Paul seemed to think he ought to get married. Because if a woman in this day and age were to lose her husband, even if there were children involved, most likely, most often in the first century world, she would move back in with her parents. And her parents, her father, would gladly take her in and their children. And so it may be that what Paul is saying to the unmarried and to the widows, if this happens, don't get married. If you're not married, don't get married. If you're a widow, don't get married. Stay single. That's theory number one. Theory number two is that the word unmarried in the Greek is in the masculine gender. The word for widows in the Greek is in the feminine gender. The masculine form of widow is not found anywhere in the Septuagint or in the entire New Testament. And it's actually quite rare in extra-biblical Greek literature. So it may be that Paul intends us to understand these Greek words as widowers and widows. To the widowers and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he's not addressing young unmarried people. He's addressing widowers and widow. What is interesting about that theory is that if it is true, then Paul is implying that he is a widower, that he was once married. 
To the widower and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. There's another argument that would support that idea, and that is there is an enormous amount. There is an enormous amount of rabbinic literature from the first century that makes it clear that Pharisees and those who were members of the Sanhedrin were expected to be married and to have children. Scholars have debated for years, how was Paul able to move up through the ranks of being a Pharisee without ever having been married? This might be an indication that maybe Paul was married. and He was now a widower, and he says, remain as I am. Don't get married. And this was before his conversion, apparently. So how do we resolve that? We really can't. I'm just going to be honest with you. But here's what I do know. Here's a good hermeneutical rule for you to always follow. Never throw out you, what you know for something you don't know. When you're studying the Bible, never throw out what you know to be true for something you don't know or something you don't fully understand. We may not fully understand how we should properly translate the Greek words found at the beginning of verse 8, but here's what we do know. Here's what is clear. Singleness is encouraged. Paul is making that clear. Not only there, but he makes it clear in verse 26 and 27 as well of that same chapter. Singleness is encouraged, and number two, celibacy is a gift. He understands not everybody can live this way. But if you can, Paul says, you should. You should. It is worth noting that this is the airtight verse for forbidding sexual relations outside of marriage. And I say that, and I want to make this really clear, because there is this teaching that is making its way through evangelical churches and across the Internet and podcasts, and YouTube channels, or whatever else, wherever else you get your information from, that says, you know, the Bible never actually condemns or forbids sex outside of marriage as long as the person that you're doing that with you're not related to, and neither one of you are married, and you're not of the same sex, and you're not doing it with an animal so to speak, bestiality. And therefore, two people, two Christians who are not related to each other, who are not married to anyone else, and they are the opposite sex, the argument goes, they can engage in premarital sex, and it is not a sin. To an extent, they are correct, in that when you go to the Old Testament text and you read them carefully, you know the long list that you've read, right? Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy chapter 22, which gives you example after example of example of thou shalt not lie with. You read it carefully, and here's what you'll notice. Thou shalt not lie with your father or your mother or your brother or your sister or your nephew or your niece or your uncle or your aunt. Or a man shall not lie with another man as he would with a woman. Or a woman shall not lie with another woman as she would with a man. And he shall not lie with an animal. And there's all of these examples, but not one 
references a man and a woman who are not married to anybody else, and they are of the opposite sex. And so the argument goes, you see, the seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. If you don't, you don't have sexual relations with someone that is married to someone else, or if you're married to someone else. If anyone cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. There's the verse. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, that's not to say the argument can't be made from the Old Testament. Don't misunderstand me. It can. But I am saying that in this day and age, anyone who espouses that kind of idea is ignoring verse 9 of our text. Because what Paul is clearly stating is that if you are overwhelmed with an overactive libido, your only option is to get married. That's what Paul says. Your only option is to get married because it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Which, by the way, parents, we oftentimes set our children up for failure by buying into the lies and the, ide the ideology of the world that says you need to get through college and you need to get your career started before you even think about marrying or being serious with someone else. Even though scientifically speaking, those desires begin creeping up at puberty. But we want them to somehow suppress those natural God-given desires to get their career launched. And then we're shocked when Susie comes up pregnant her second year in college. Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Find a fellow believer who loves God and believes that the Bible is the word of God and marry them. That's the other way we set up our kids for failure is that we have all of these high standards. They need to be a believer. They need to be reformed. They need to live in Texas. They need to come from a good background. They need to like baseball or you're not going to marry them. When I give, let me give you the marital counseling that I give to all people who are thinking about getting married. What do you look for in a spouse? You look for a spouse who loves Christ with all of his heart, mind, and soul. Is head over heels for the glory of Christ. That's number one. And number two, you look for someone who believes this is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. Because if you find that, you're going to find someone who's going to read these passages on marriage and say, I need to do this. God will work out the details. God will work out the details. All right, that's not even in my notes. The point, 
point is this. Let me tie this all together for you. If you can remain single, according to Paul, you should. Paul thinks singleness is better. If you can remain single, you should. Because you can do more for God's kingdom and for the glory of Christ if you are able to remain single. You can burn the candle at both ends for the glory of God. That's the point for the singles in our midst. But here's the point for the rest of us. The church needs to be better. The church needs to be better at affirming and even encouraging singleness and not looking down on single adults as though there is something wrong with them, feeling sorry for them, and trying to fix them by playing matchmaker. The church needs to be better at affirming and even encouraging singleness among single adults and parents among our children. Because Paul prefers singleness over being married. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remap our minds, Lord. We just have this natural tendency from experience or tradition or from what we've been told that marriage is the goal. Marriage is the end goal for everyone. And those who don't get married, there's just something not right. And yet Paul would turn all of that upside down. And so I pray, Lord, I pray for um, our single adults that are in our midst and maybe those who are listening to this message online. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would make your will for their life clear to them. If your desire is for them to marry, Lord, then we pray for them and with them that you would bring that special person into, your li- into their life that you have foreordained from eternity past. But if it is your will that they remain single and they pour out the whole of their life in service to you, then, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them by your Holy Spirit and that they would not cave to the pressures of this world, the pressures of the church, the pressures of their family and of their parents. And we pray for the church, Lord. I pray for the rest of us that you would help us to have a biblical view of singleness that we would not discourage it, that we would not look at our single friends as though they are missing something or lacking anything, but that we would affirm it, we would encourage it, and we would pray with them and for them in whatever their desire might be. And so I do pray that for all of us, Lord, that we might be united in heart and in mind, recognizing that not everyone is called to walk the same path in life. We pray all these things in Christ's name.